You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. This morning we are in 2 John, in the middle of our 40-some-odd-week sermon series on John. We got an odd break this week, and I figured, you know, we needed more John. So we're going to 2 John. It's almost all the way at the back of your Bible, just before Revelation. There's these tiny little books 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and particularly the last two are two of my favorite books in the whole Bible, and so I got to choose this morning, and we're talking about 2nd John. We're going to do a whole book in one sermon, all 13 verses of it. It's going to be great. So, uh, I'd invite you to turn in your Bible, and I will read the whole book of 2nd John to you very quickly. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I was asking you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we've had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what you've worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, don't receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete." The children of your elect sister greet you. This is God's word. Uh, dear Lord, Father God, we just come before you that asking that you would help us to read your word faithfully and truly. Um, help us to understand what it means this morning uh, to walk in truth and in love uh, as we read this very short letter uh, from an ancient author to an ancient church. Help us to understand how it is relevant to our lives um, individually and as a church at Holy Cross. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, maybe this last week you've had uh, some family get-togethers. I didn't have a family get-together. Uh, we went separately without our family. But maybe if you did have one, you would uh, have had some moments where you kind of clashed with your family, where you run into someone who you do not quite agree with, uh, or maybe uh, you just at work or school. We, we all often run into people uh, and run into situations where, especially as Christians, we see people living in ways that we just simply can't agree with, right? We, we run into conflicts that are sometimes kind of hard to, to just pass over. And oftentimes, uh, the church responds in one of two ways. We maybe uh, beat our Bibles up and down and say, you just need a little more truth. If you just live correctly, man, we would do that. I'm, I'm probably prone to that tendency. Uh, but sometimes we tend to respond in the other way, right? The Beatles, all you need is love. And we can picture a church that is maybe committed just exclusively to love as a church. 
And, and this passage this morning, I think, tells us something really important that is, I think, really, really relevant for the moment we're in right now. That as a church and as Christians, we need both truth and love. We cannot be committed to just a church that only teaches God's truth without his love. We also can't be committed to just loving our neighbor without any of God's truth. We actually have to define one of those with the other one. We have to be committed to both biblical truth and biblical love. And I think we see that in uh, this letter. We can all kind of picture people that exhibit one of those things. And maybe as you read this, think to yourself, are you, do you tend towards uh, just love or just truth? Because this, this calls us to do both, and I think unpacks that uh, for us. In this letter, 2 John, uh, right off the bat, it starts off a little bit weird. And maybe you've never read this one before. I hadn't uh, growing up because it doesn't fit into sermon series really easily. It's just one uh, sermon. Uh, 2 John, he starts off verse 1, the elder, that's himself, to the elect lady and her children. Kind of weird. Is he writing to one person and her kids or something else? Uh, most people, most of the time in church history, have interpreted this as being to the church. This is a metaphor for the church. The church is this elect bride of Christ, right? Uh, it also, this letter gets really confusing if we try to read it as to a specific person, because uh, she happens to have a, a sister named Elect Lady that greets her at the end. That's also weird. Uh, so we think that when he talks about Elect Lady, he's talking about the church. When he talks about the children, he's talking about the members of the church. So he's addressing you. He's addressing me. He's addressing Christians today as he greets a church. And, he's, and he speaks to them, and he says, Hey, I've rejoiced, verse 4, I've rejoiced to, to meet some of you and to see you doing really, really well. As John writes to them, he knows that some of them are absolutely flourishing, and he rejoices to see that. We can look around the room and see Christians loving the Lord uh, through their vocation, through their gifts. Love to hear you guys sing this morning. What a great picture of serving the Lord with the gifts we've been given. And John does that. He looks and he says, I rejoice to see some of you walking in the truth. But there's also a problem. There's a problem that he's addressing in this letter. There's a reason why he writes it. Because verse 7, this, this young church is encountering some what he calls deceivers in verse 7. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world. There are these false teachers who are coming into the church and they're traveling around and they're teaching this very specific thing. In verse 7 he says, they don't confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They don't believe that Jesus, when he came, really had human flesh. There's a couple reasons why they might be confused about that. We tend to think, like, of course, well, there, there might have been a man, a historical person, Jesus, who had real flesh, but, it, you know, people today often more struggle with the idea that he might have also been fully God. At their time, a, a lot of people didn't have an issue with the idea of a God coming down to earth. That was a part of their cultural uh, identity, right? Greek gods and goddesses putting on a human form. But what they really struggled with conceptually was the idea that this God would actually have real human flesh, right? That, that Jesus, God's son, would also struggle with acne and have to go to the bathroom and do all the things that make us human physically. And they really struggled with this. And so we had, at the early church, uh, documented history, people going around teaching that they believed in Jesus, they just didn't believe he was really human, which, which causes some massive problems for us, right? There's a lot of things people debate in the church. The fact that Jesus was fully God and fully human is not one that's normally up for debate. 
That's pretty basic, uh, basic belief. Even if we don't all know that, that is pretty, pretty essential. Because if he's not fully God, then his, his death, his sacrifice doesn't really mean much. He's just a dude. And if he's not fully human, then again, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a real sacrifice. It doesn't really mean anything for us. And so they're, they're teaching this false teaching that Jesus isn't fully human. But uh, unlike us, this isn't just some YouTube video of a sermon they're watching that's maybe not so good. This isn't just like a blog post or a, a book that's unhelpful. These are people traveling around being received into homes. See, in the ancient world, if you wanted to go uh, and get, hear some new ideas, you couldn't simply go to, I mean, you could go to a library if you were extremely wealthy and wanted to read a handwritten scroll. Uh, but most people didn't have access to that information. So teachers would travel around, go from city to city, staying in people's homes instead of inns, because inns were not nice places, and uh, be welcomed in. And often churches might host a traveling speaker that came to town to stay for a couple weeks and spread new and wonderful preaching with them. And that was a great thing. But the issue here is that they've got these traveling preachers who have come, but they're not preaching the core Christian truth, that Christ was really the Son of God, and that Christ was really fully human. In, in verse 9, he continues to explain what's wrong. He says, everyone who goes on ahead, who, who keeps moving past these basic truths, and doesn't abide, doesn't dwell in the teaching of Christ, they don't have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. I love that word abide, right? Sometimes we, we hear the word that's similar, abode, like your home. To abide in something means to dwell. Think about where is a place that you dwell? Where do you feel at home? Maybe you felt that this last week on Thanksgiving. Where do you feel at rest? Uh, what's what's kind of your uh, home place, the place where you reset and in Scripture, John in particular calls us repeatedly to abide, to make our homes in Christ. To, and, and there's this wonderful invitation there, by the way, if you, if you are feeling a little bit homeless, a little bit restless, that there is a home offered to you in Christ. Your truest dwelling place is not your current home or apartment, uh, not the home your parents grew up in that's sold now. It's none of those it's the person of Christ, and that we can abide in him. And yet there's this temptation that these folks in this passage have given into, of saying, you know, as good as it is to abide in the teachings of Christ, as good as it is to dwell with, with just the truth Scripture has given us, what if we, like, speculated and went on a little further, right? This is the temptation all of us at some point might encounter where we, we start asking these questions that are good questions about who is God and why did he make evil and how did things happen the way they are? And those are maybe wonderful and valid questions to ask, but really quickly, sometimes even as a church, we can move past the, the teaching that God has given us and move in, go on ahead, as this passage calls it in verse 9, into the realm of speculation, which is a, a world that we probably don't want to dwell in as a church. We can, we can all kind of picture like the freshman dorm room at 10 o'clock with the guys like talking, getting really, really out there, kind of hippie conversation about, well, who do you, th- you think God is, man? Like, and maybe you've been there. Uh, we're called not to go there as a church. You know, when we open up scripture, we have not a story about ourselves, but a story about the eternal living God as he's revealed himself to us. And when we open up scripture with that as our framework, 
We're invited not to necessarily probe past what he's given us and to speculate, but instead to dig really deep, really wonderfully deep into what, how God has revealed himself, who he's revealed himself to be. And that, I think, for me, changes the way I read the Bible. This, this is not primarily a story about me. This is a primarily a story about my creator, about God. And so we're invited, we're asked, we're warned not to charge on ahead. But these people are, are doing this. And, and the challenge is now this young church has brought these people in and they're meeting in a house and they're staying in that house and they're welcomed them in. And then verse 10, they've challenged, they're, they're now uh, bringing this teaching to the church as a whole. And again, this passage is not talking about people who necessarily believe just something different than us. It's talking about people who are teaching something different than the truth. Uh, it's an important distinction because he's that we are absolutely called to be welcoming, inviting, loving, caring to people who might just simply believe something different than we do, right? We do not want to be uh, mean, exclusive, without compassion in those senses. But he's talking here about people who are trying to come into the church and teach something totally different than the core truth of, of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. He says, if anyone comes to you, verse 10, and doesn't bring this teaching, then don't receive him into your house. Don't receive him into your church. Don't give him any greeting uh, because you're going to be essentially taking part in their works. You're going to be spreading their deception. Uh, what's, what's the relevance for us today, right? We can platform people. Uh, we can share information that's simply incorrect. Uh, we've perhaps maybe all seen that or been worried about that. Uh, the idea of spreading false information, right, on social media or on the internet or maybe on the news. Uh, people, people are a very big hot topic in the last couple of years. And at this time, one of the ways that false information was being spread was just through hosting a teacher and bringing them into the church without verifying that what they actually said was true. And he's challenging them here, make sure, and it's challenged for us as well, make sure that what we're sharing is actually true and valid information. We need to be really careful in what we repost, what we share, what we, what we tell a friend, uh, book recommendations, all of that, right? Because we can really quickly and easily spread things that are not helpful, that are absolutely not true. And so he's concerned, he's concerned about that, so much so that verse 8, he says, watch yourselves so that you might not lose the reward that we've worked for, but might win a full reward. He's not talking about their salvation. Instead, he's talking about this idea that there's a fruit of salvation. Sometimes in the church, uh, we, we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? The idea that once we've been saved, there's this fruit that wells up in Christians, not a literal fruit, but uh, benefits of, of God's Spirit working in us, that he might actually change my heart, change my desires to be more like his. It's this wonderful truth of the Christ Christian life that I at first maybe don't even want Christ, and yet when I accept him, he's going to change my very desire to seek after him. And he says, don't lose what you've worked for. Don't lose this precious, precious reward. So that's the problem John's addressing. He's got these false teachers who have come in, they're traveling around the world, and they're, they're just not teaching this fundamental truth that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And the church is, instead of rejecting them, they're platforming this incorrect truth. And so what's his response to that? If it was me and like people were coming and teaching the wrong thing, I might think like the response is like just to give them some better theology books, 
right? Maybe some like catechism questions and answers. Maybe if we just stuck to like our doctrinal standards more. Instead, he does none of that. He doesn't do any of that. His, his truth, is his solution is a lot simpler. It's the idea of walking in truth and walking in love. It's the main point of this whole little letter. Look at verses 1 and 2 uh, with me. So, the elder to the elect lady and her children in the church, whom I love in truth. He loves the church in truth. And not only I love them in truth, but also everybody who knows the truth. Why? Because this central truth that abides in us uh, will be with us forever. Uh, if, if this starts to sound really like cyclical, like we're defining terms with other terms, that's because that's how John writes. Uh, and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are absolutely full of what kind of almost seems like circular logic. He loves to define one word with another one and then take that word and define it with the first one. Really confusing, lovely uh, English here. And he says, I loved you in truth. I love you in truth. And because this truth that is Christ abides, it dwells in us and it's with us forever. If we're a church that's not, or we're Christians that's not committed to this central truth of Jesus Christ having come as fully God, having died also as fully man, and being resurrected, then, then we don't actually have the capability to understand his love and his sacrifice for us. If we, if we get rid of the truth claims that we have, there's no reason to exhibit Christ's love, because it doesn't really exist if we don't believe he was also a real human and also really God. I don't know if that makes sense. If we get rid of the idea that Jesus was fully human and fully God and really died for us, if we don't believe that, then we don't have any model for true love. We can't understand his true love because we don't believe that it really existed in the first place. And this is kind of at the heart of this idea. This is his solution to this problem, that we walk not just in being a church that loves, not just in being a church that thumps the Bible up and down, but we have both courage and compassion. We live in truth and in love. Verse 3, he takes this normal greeting, this normal beginning to a letter in the New Testament, and he changes it a couple ways. Instead of uh, the normal way, he says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and in love. If it's starting to sound repetitive, that's because it is. He's really into repeating the idea that we need both truth and love tied together. In verse 5, he, he gives them this biggest, probably the biggest plea in the whole letter. Maybe hopefully the biggest plea in the whole sermon this morning. He says, now I ask you, dear lady, church, not as though I'm writing to you a new commandment. This isn't any new information, but just one, just a commandment, just something we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is a challenge. This is why I like this letter so much, because it stings me personally. Right? There's this famous passage in John 13 where he says, Christ says, I'm giving you this new commandment that you love one another, and this is how people are going to know that you're my disciples is by your love for one another. And, and when I've, like, I've heard that, I've grown up with that, but then sometimes in my life, when I've looked back at the church that I've known, the people that I've known in the church and the church as an institution, I don't think that would be a very good description. Like, it would not necessarily, myself included, would not always have been best known by my love for other Christians, right? As an institution, we are often not best identified by our love for one another. And yet there's this amazing, challenging command in John 13, and that he's repeating here, that we're known 
by the love that we have for one another and that we continue to love one another. C.S. Lewis talks about this uh, beauty of looking down the pew and being like frustrated at the person singing a little off key to your right and like maybe annoyed by the guy with the bad breath to your left and yet remembering that they are truly uh, eternal beings created by God Almighty who will live longer than the church, longer than the sun, any of that, that they are eternal beings. And how, can it, how is it that we can like hate them and be frustrated by them? And, and there's this challenge here that we are called to love one another and to be known by our love for one another. And yet that doesn't come at the expense of what God has called us to do. It, it does not come at the expense of what God's called us to do. Verse 6, he, if we're wondering how do we love each other as Christians, he, he tells us, he says, this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is love. If you want to love your fellow Christian, then we need to walk according to God's commandments. He's defining love in terms of biblical truth. Because by commandments, he, he, we could picture a couple things right here. That the main thing I'm picturing is kind of the Ten Commandments, right? A, an easy moral code for how to live. And, and they give us a couple big uses for those Ten Commandments, right? We could, they give us a way to live. They give us order for society. They, give us, uh, they point us to our inability to follow them. Uh, but as we see God's commands... That's how we're actually going to love one another. When we're dedicated to God's truth, his, his picture that he's revealed of himself to us, that's the best way to love one another. And even Christ tells us uh, that you know, the whole law can be summed up. All those Ten Commandments can be summed up, not as just truth, but as love God and love neighbor. So these two ideas, I want us to like just link them together so that we cannot have one without the other. If our picture of like biblical truth is devoid of love, then it's not really biblical truth. And if our picture of biblical love is devoid of truth, it's not real truth either. Uh, ultimately, though, our picture of biblical love has to, I think, be found in Jesus. Right? True love has no greater expression than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. The, the greatest picture of love humanity has ever seen the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, right? The, the blameless, the one human without sin being sacrificed for our sins. The one with the ability to judge, judged in our place. And that's, that's the ultimate picture of love that we need to be continuing to, uh, to walk in. And so he, he calls us to, to live in truth and love, but he also, at the end of the letter, gives us another clue for how to fight um, this, this kind of disease of false teaching that they're encountering. Verses 12 and 13. He says, Though I have much to write to you, right? He could spend a lot of ink on this. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. He says, you know, I, I could spend, I could write a lot, right? And we have scripture that, that goes on for a long, long, long time. This letter is not one of them. Instead, he says, I want to get to know you personally. I want to come see you face to face. I want to travel to be in your church to talk to you on a one-on-one -on -one relational level. This, this is another major defense we have against kind of being a, a church that only lives in truth or only lives in love, is that we have real in-person relationships with one another. And, and of course, there are challenges to that. COVID's a big one that, that has popped up, right? There's challenges of distance. But at the same time, uh, they lived in a world where, where 
they had a lot harder time traveling. And yet he has a personal relationship with people who live hundreds of miles away uh, when you've got to literally walk there. Uh, they don't have the ability to send an email or text or FaceTime. He's got to like write out on you know, a scroll and get someone to physically carry it there. And he says, yet yeah, I want to have this face-to-face, in-person relationship with you. When we have face-to-face relationships in church, when we, when we worship God with people that we know, who we live life together with in our life groups, we share meals together with weekly, uh, we have continuity over time with, when we do that, we have this wonderful defense mechanism against just being Bible-thumping mean people to each other. We also have, I think, a wonderful defense mechanism against just being people that talk about love but have no real commitment to God's truth. Uh, because when we live real life together, uh, we have this, this bond that pulls us together. And this is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian, <laughs> to live life in community. You know, the New Testament letters are not written to people that are just going like, to live life on their own, on islands, with like an island of spirituality in my own little world. Instead, they're written to communities, to churches, uh, and to people that are working and living in churches. And this letter is no exception. He says, I want to see you face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. Christian community provides joy. That's something we really try to do here at Holy Cross, right? We're having a Christmas party. We want to have fun. We have donuts and coffee. We want to have a good time uh, because Christian community and our picture of worship is hopefully a lot richer than just an eternal hymn sing, right? I I hope that our picture of heaven is more than just picturing a long sermon for every day and then singing and then another long sermon and then singing and then another sermon and then singing. Hopefully our picture of Christian community is a lot richer than that. We want our joy to be complete. Face-to-face relationships in the church give us a richer picture of God's uh, heaven for us. So what, what does this mean for us? I think it, it hopefully is not terribly complicated, this little letter of 2 John. It, it's this idea that love and truth are not an either-or. We cannot be a, a church devoted to just truth. We cannot be a church devoted to just love. We have to do both uh, at the same time. How do we do that, right? We can do that in a number of ways. As we're committed to Christ's teaching, that's an essential part of it. We can't uh, know Jesus without knowing what he's taught us and how to live. We can't be committed to truth without knowing what the truth is that he was actually saying. We also have to be committed to living out uh, this picture of love. We're, we're trying to do that through increasing our missions effort, increasing our outreach efforts. We're, right now, we've got a couple easy opportunities. We've got, and in the lobby, just a, an easy one, is our RUF bags that we're collecting to get to know college students through that ministry, as well as um, a program for uh, more than a bed with foster families and supporting them. Right? When we talk about love, it's not just being kind. We, we can really love on people through financial giving, but, but also it's, it's the way we control ourselves, the way we represent ourselves. I can't think of the amount of people that I am saddened regularly to see uh, from you know, previous parts of my life just absolutely destroying the church's witness on Facebook through anything but Christian love. And, and because they're upset about a, a picture of truth, and we're called to do both of these. We, we have to have a full, in this passage, he calls us to a commitment to not just the teaching of Christ, but teaching about Christ, right? Understanding who Jesus was. If we're a church that's not focused on Jesus, then we've kind of lost our way, right? We need to keep, keep our mission clear. 
He calls us to live in truth and love by not platforming people uh, or ideas that we don't agree with. Um, He calls us ultimately to live life together. If we want to live life in truth and in love, then we need to live it together as a church, not just as individuals. Um, So, yeah, I, I really like this passage. Sorry, I'm just stuttering. It's a, it's, a, it's a great one. This is one of my favorite little books of the Bible because personally, I've really struggled with this. Personally, I'm worried sometimes when I hear fellow Christians talking about just loving on everybody that there might be a lack of commitment to God's truth. And yet I've also been and experienced the type of Christian that is committed to truth at the expense of Christ's love. And I really just wanted to share this letter with you this morning because I think that it's something that's really important for us. As we understand Christ's uh, picture of truth, there's this one narrative. It's the one true story in our world, the one uh, way to explain everything truly. As we experience love, Christ is the ultimate picture of love. Nothing we have can really uh, match Christ. It's all just a shadow compared to him. And it, it tells us, it argues with us, uh, it, it hopefully persuades our hearts that we simply cannot live uh, with one at the expense of the other, but that in Christ we can live in both love and in truth. When we picture this, maybe it's kind of hard to, to do that, but grace is ultimately how this comes together. Because without a vision of grace, without the idea of forgiveness, without our heart's ability to Uh, let go of of transgressions and sins committed against us, then when we see someone who's hurt us, we only see how they're living against God's truth. And we can't love them. If we see someone who's loving us, we maybe forget the fact that we're called to live in God's truth. But with grace, we can do both. Uh, And and I hope that we'll continue to extend God's grace uh, to each other, to the church as a whole, uh, and and to ourselves um, as we try to live in truth and love. I'm going to pray. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.